Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Well, so a funny thing happened while we were recording this podcast the first time. We got an hour in, and then the recorder that I'm using on my computer, it decided to not record the next hour. So we recorded half of a conversation of that whole second hour and then found out that we didn't have it. So Crystal and I sat down the next night to try and at least recreate some of that conversation. It's it's tough to try and recreate a conversation that you had. I know we missed a lot that we talked about the first time. And I'm kind of sad about that because I remember some things that we talked about and I, I can't remember how we got there or even specifics. So we sat down again and we we recorded the end of the chapter. But in the future, we'll definitely be working to increase our technical savvy so that this doesn't happen again. So this is episode four, which is going to be a discussion of chapter one. Crystal and I have both read chapter one. This will be a discussion about the preface and chapter one. Oh, are we discussing the preface? We are discussing the preface. Ooh, I don't know if I actually read the preface. Uh-oh. Right? The preface to the third edition? Preface to the third edition. So what thoughts do you have on the preface? One of the biggest things is that it says the these are essays that have appeared in the parents' review. So each of these essentially can stand alone, I guess each chapter, where it also builds on itself. The Parents National Education Union was a collection of parents who were home educating or having their children schooled at home. And by having their children schooled at home, you mean someone, they hired someone else to come to their home and educate their children? Either a tutor or a governess. Oh, okay. That makes sense. There was no public school system. This is in the 1800s. And either there there was no, or it was, it was very sorely lacking. Gotcha. And so the, the, these parents who enjoyed what Charlotte Mason was doing and what she was espousing as a... A philosophy came together and created this Parents National Education Union and published a, I think, a, like a magazine or a quarterly or something. Really? Called the Parents Review. And so the Parents Review were not necessarily always written by her. And it wasn't necessarily 100% what she was saying, but a collection of like minded parents and teachers and governesses who. Interesting. And mothers who were learning and doing and teaching in the Charlotte Mason method back in the 1800s. Um, so the, that's where this book comes about. This Parents and Children comes about as a collection of essays from that. Now, this collection of essays, is are these essays ones that Charlotte Mason actually wrote? Again, I don't know. I have not done that research. Interesting. Okay. And so... Both the the principles of this these essays were one the recognition of the physical basis of habit, i.e. the material side of education, and two the inspiring and formative power of ideas, i.e. of the immaterial or spiritual side of education. So the the melding and blending of the physical and the spiritual, where you need both. Mm-hmm. And she's not not prescribing a specific recipe, a specific way of doing it. Right. 
but leaving that up to this the individual parents and children and how they relate to each other and how they have their own how, well, how they are their own people their own group well she says this a little bit further the object of the following essays is to give an example or a suggestion here and there as to how and such a habit may be formed and such and such a formative idea may be implanted and fostered the intention of this of the volume will account to the reader for the iteration of some principles in various connections so yeah she's not she's not saying this is your curriculum do this do these individual specific things well if you look on the earlier page before it says the essays mm -hmm. um it says you know i've specifically tried not to weight these pages with directions mm -hmm. practical suggestions and other such crutches she doesn't even see them as oh, crutches. beneficial oh wow directions practical suggestions she's calling crutches yeah so she wants and, the direction and practical suggestions. Where, where does where does she see those coming from? Then where I guess where do where do we see those suggestions and and uh... it's up to the parents. Again, uh, starting this whole paragraph, it's you know the individuality of the parents, and the greatness of the nation depends upon how far the parents, gotcha. how how highly and how lofty they view this office of parenting and how they discharge it interesting which like i said i didn't read the preface until i just skimmed it but but yeah that's that's really diving into a lot of the thoughts from chapters one and two that we're going to get to any other thoughts on the preface nope now that we've basically read the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's short so chapter one Let's do it. Let me skip through the contents real quick. I thought, I think, I feel like the contents is a really cool way of laying this out because it, it gives like the first. It gives the headers and the outline. I, I like it. So chapter one, the family. Rousseau succeeded in arousing parents. The family, a commune. The family must be social. The family must serve poorer neighbors. The family must serve the nation. The divine order for the family as regards other nations. The family should A, learn languages, B, show courtesy abroad, and then the restoration of the family. Okay, so that, yeah, that is a, that's an outline. And then when we get into the chapter, those specific things that you said are high, are yeah. uh, bolded. Those are, those are the bolded headings. Interesting. Okay. I get it now. <laughs> chapter one then, parents and children, chapter one, the family. First thoughts, I, I don't have anything highlighted until about halfway down page two. Well, she's talking about Rousseau, mm -hmm. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was French. I think he was originally Dutch and then moved to France. And then came about with this little bit, uh, a, a tidbit of inspiration, as, what she, as she calls it. <laughs> and that, she, that he was very, very successful in awakening the parents to their high calling yeah that was something that that struck out to me was under the spell of his teaching people in the fashionable world forsook society and went off with their children to some quiet corner where they could devote every hour of the day and every power they had to the fulfillment of the duties which devolve upon parents and she closes this paragraph out with they asked the feeling spread that the bringing up of their children was the one work of primary importance for men and women 
the the thought I was having is reflecting these uh, this set of par or this set of sentences with today's state of parenting and education. I feel like the the what does she say? She says the bringing up children was the one work of primary importance for men and women. It's absolutely not the the one work of primary importance for men and women right now. Thinking about this brought to mind a, a little video clip I watched about an actor who I, I guess it was in the 90s or something. He had a very promising career in front of him and things were going well and then his wife died and he oh. said no. Uh, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I think that's it. Oh man, those are great movies too. Well, and or he, I remember them as he, great movies. He said no. He said no. I my my primary responsibility is to my children, and yeah. I am stopping. I am not going to mix Hollywood with family raising on my own. Rick Moranis. So that that brought that to mind when it was talking about fashionable society. He would be a primary example of this. And there are very few that do that. Absolutely. In 97, Moranis took a hiatus from working in the film industry. He later explained, I'm a single parent, and I just found that it was too difficult to manage to raise my kids and to do the traveling involved in making movies. So I took a little bit of a break. And that little bit of a break turned into a longer break. And then I found that I really don't miss it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. He is. He forsook the the world to to realize that primary responsibility of raising his children because he all of a sudden found himself as a single parent and had the means of being a single stay-at-home dad. I had forgotten about about that. Yeah, and that dude was funny too. <laughs> Strange Brew. That was his first one. It was a great movie. The next thing I have highlighted is it rests with you parents of young children to be the saviors of society unto a thousand generations nothing else matters mm -hmm. everything else is foolish child's play compared to this one serious business of bringing up our children in advance of ourselves i highlighted that too which gives a an extremely lofty view of what i get to do Mm -hmm. Because I'm bringing up young children, and you're bringing up young children. Yeah. Uh, if you if you back up just one sentence, he said uh, he did not say we have no hope of the parents. Let us work for the children. Such are the faint-hearted and pessimistic things we say today. What he said was in effect, fathers and mothers, this is your work, and only you can do it. Only you. No one else can raise your children. Yep. No one else. This this is you. And and she says later that that if you abdicate that, then you can't ever get it back, and and we see that with with children who are separated from their parents, be it by uh, child protective services or be it because the parents need to go to seek uh, mental or medical help, and they're separated from their children for long periods of time. That that relationship is forever changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and. It's coming out more and more as as science advances how much brain development and how much your capability for trust, mm -hmm. how much your capability for attachment occurs in the very young years, like four and under, where re regardless of who it is, if it's your mother, your father, or another person, if you don't have that person to learn to trust, 
then it's very hard to in your later years. Right. Uh, nigh impossible. Nigh impossible to learn to trust that person or just to learn to trust? To learn to trust people. Hmm. A single person, people at large. Your your ability to trust people is hampered. Mm-hmm. Which then hampers uh, even marital relationships down mm-hmm. the road, which affects the next generation, which leads yeah. to the whole saviors of society unto a thousand generations. Yeah. Because if your kids are raised with the ability to trust, they get married and can trust their spouse, then those children are raised in a family where their parents trust each other and are there. And there there will always be there will always be the part of society that things don't work out well, where divorces happen, where sicknesses and illnesses happen, where people have vices, where children end up living with relatives instead of their parents. These things will happen. But what I think is that if the majority of families are well-adjusted, if the majority of parents are seeing raising their children as primary responsibility, then society as a whole benefits because even those children who are not raised in those homes, they're raised around those homes. And they're raised knowing that those homes exist. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important, yes, for our children. It's also important for our children's friends and and our friends' children that we be a family who follows these principles. What do you have next, honey? Um, next, I have the, the end of the line. Uh, Rousseau perceived that God placed the training of every child into the hands of two, a father and a mother. And the response to his teaching proved that, as the waters answer to the drawing of the moon, so do the hearts of parents rise to the idea of the great work committed to them. Mm-hmm. And and the the waters have no control over the fact that they are responding to the moon with the tides. They 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 don't do anything, but the task is put before parents, and they are. It explicitly put before parents. It says, you know, this this relies on you and only you can do it. So the parent wakes up and says, okay, this is my job. I will do this. This mm-hmm. is what I am called to do. And that was, that was what she was saying Rousseau did really good at. He did very bad at giving something after that, mm. but calling to the knowledge and the awareness of your job was what he succeeded in more than anyone else had yeah that makes sense i liked that analogy too I, I highlighted that as well what do you have next well i the the thought part of why i highlighted that was the the specific language she used perceived that god placed the training of every child in the hands of two a father and a mother she didn't say parent one parent two she didn't say the hands of one or two no it's a father and a mother Children need both. And that's that's the way it is. That's the way that the family works best. Uh, that's the way that children learn best. So I, I thought I thought that was interesting and I, I wanted to I wanted to point out that. That was the end of the intro to this that Rousseau succeeded in awakening parents. The next is the chapter or the section the family a commune. Real real quick. Yeah. Go ahead. Um the last line although no doubt every parent is conscious of unwritten laws more or less 
uh, definite and noble according to their own status. An attempt, however slight, to codify these laws may be interesting to parents. I feel like that's kind of a thesis statement. That's that's what she is doing mm. with her philosophy of education. She's attempting to codify this this set of unwritten laws that parents know is there, mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily sure what they are. Because again, Rousseau, like she was saying, Rousseau did a very poor job mm-hmm. of giving them something to do after them being called to that high task of raising children. Yeah. This is that was something that uh, she talks about in the preface to the home education series. She says, uh, "Those of us who have spent years pursuing the benign and elusive vision of education perceive that her approaches are regulated by a law, and that this law has yet to be evoked. We can discern its outlines, but no more." And then she starts describing the the boundaries of it and what it is and what it does. And so she sets forth principles. And I, I think you're right. That does sound very much like a like a thesis statement. This is back in the preface a workable effectual philosophy of education Mm -hmm. as a deliverance from much much perplexity okay so the family is a commune this this took me a couple read-throughs to to be okay with her language why do you think that is is it just because the terminology has changed over the years or because we have experienced commune or i guess you and i haven't directly experienced communism but it is in the the recent past. Yeah, there. So communism, and, and I haven't done the research on this, but just from what I remember from world history from when I was in high school, communism was a thought and it was an idea. And it always stood out as a, as a great beacon of the way things should be. Things should be communistic. And I think I agree with that to some extent, that the best society would be one that everybody pulls their own weight and everybody everybody rises and falls with the, the community and no one gets left behind. No one doesn't work, at least to the, to the ability that they have. You don't kill off old people just because they're old and feeble. You, you don't kill off sick people just because they're sick and can't work. You you take care of your sick, you take care of your elders, you take care of the kids and the widows because we're all working towards a common goal. And that's idealistic. But since her writing of this, we've seen communist regimes rise and have terrible consequences. Um, You look at Venezuela right now. Venezuela is in dire straits because they have a socialistic communist regime that has taken over and was pointed to by the by the American, I don't know, far left thinkers that, you know, Venezuela, oh man, they're trying communism. It's going to be great. It's going to be socialism. It's going to work. This is why we should do it here in the U.S. Well, it failed and, and it's not good for anybody except the richest of the rich. And so those are, those are the thoughts in my head as I see her talking about commune and that the family should be communistic. So that's that's that was my background to where I was coming at with this section. And so it took me a minute to divorce my own thoughts of nationalistic communism from small group communism. And and what is what is the actual communistic principle and am I okay with it? And I think I am. 
because I think it makes sense. Uh, you, when, when you read in scripture about the early church, they were very much a communistic community. They, they all took care of one another. They took care of the poor. They took care of the widow. They took care of the needy. They pooled all of their money. They all worked for the common good. And I think that is the shining beacon of how society, at least on a small scale, should work. So that's, that's where I ended up in my thinking as I read this, I think for the third or fourth time, beating my head up against a wall going, no. So the, the Russian communism started in the early 1900s with Lenin. Well, in addition to the Russian communism, Karl Marx was mid-1800s. Yeah, so the most, uh, this is again, uh, Wikipedia, this is history of communism. Most modern forms of communism are grounded, at least nominally, in Marxism, an ideology conceived by noted sociologist Karl Marx during the mid-19th century. Well, Charlotte Mason um, was born in 1842 mm-hmm. and died in 1923, and she started her work with children when she was about 16. So that would be 1858. So she's, she's 58 to... Um, 1920. Mm-hmm. So she was around and in education, and she's obviously well read, and she was obviously keeping up with the philosophical thinkers of her time. And so she was probably very aware of Marx's works and his thoughts. And and so was the United States. She she says she says in this chapter, uh, but that's not the case in the United States, perhaps because hired labor is less is less easy to obtain than it is with us, they appear to have found a congenial soil, and there many well-regulated communistic bodies flourish. There are failures too, many and disastrous, and it appears that these may usually be traced to one cause, a government enfeebled by the attempt to combine democratic and communistic principles, that is, to dwell together in a common life while each does what is right in his own eyes. A communistic body can thrive only under a vigorous, and absolute rule. So, anyway, long story short on on communism and, and communistic thinking and socialism and Karl Marx and Lenin and Stalin and um, all of that. As a nationalistic principle, um, I think we can say definitively that communism is not a good way to run a country. And socialism, at least as the absolute uh, method of law is is not the way to run a country and we can point to any any number of of places for that but this is not a political podcast it's not a political commentary so having said all of that as much as i believe that those statements are true i appreciate what she's saying about the family as a commune so let's get back to what she's saying and and actually listen to uh, Charlotte Mason here. Do you think it's that it cannot work on that large of a scale as far as the nation scale, but as she's talking, it, sh- it could and should exist on a, a small scale? I think her sentence right here, a communistic body can thrive only under a vigorous and absolute rule. A vigorous and absolute rule works when all of the people involved are voluntary and are of one mind. A a monastery. The people that go to a monastery to be monks go to a monastery because they want to be monks. Now, 
I'm sure that there are people that end up in a monastery that didn't want to be a, mo a monk, but you sign up for it. It's voluntary. You've, you've made that decision to place yourself under the vigorous and absolute rule of the monastery. When you're born into a communistic country, you didn't choose to be a part of this vigorous and absolute rule of an entire nation of people. I don't think it works when it's not voluntary. I think, I think that might be the key. That if you voluntarily sign up because you say, you know what? I fully agree and endorse that this is the way this commune should work. And I'm going to be a part of it. And if that's the way you want to work, great. But that's not how everybody wants to do it. And so I, I think that's the key, is that it works for small groups whose members are voluntary. But as soon as you start talking about it on a nationalistic scale, you're talking about people who don't voluntarily choose to be a part of it. And, okay, now we're talking about our own children. Our children are not volunteering to be a part of our family. Because, <laughs> well, we conceived them. You birthed them. And they didn't come out of the womb and say, Okay, Mom and Dad, I don't want to be a part of this commune. Please, please run this differently. They didn't get that choice. There, there was a book I read one of my first years at camp called The Simple Way. Um, started by Shane Claiborne, or written by Shane Claiborne. And it's a movement in Philadelphia uh, a group of of individuals of people who came together to live as they did in Acts where they would break bread together and have everything in common together and it was extremely gripping I think I think it might have even made the cut when we went through all our books but I'm not sure I haven't seen it in a while but like you were saying it has to be voluntary for those who are involved and I'm not sure. It, it it's it drew me in with its simplicity. It drew me in with its uh, the the way of life. It was a long time ago that I read this book, <laughs> but at the same time, I was how how do you how do people actually do this? Why do mm -hmm. people actually do this? And this isn't practical. Mm. I'm I'm very numbers oriented. Very this 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 and. It wasn't practical. Right. And I think this, it kind of comes back to what we're talking about here, where the family is a commune and it, it needs to have a well, well defined head, an absolute sovereign in charge of it. And where communes go wrong is where they try to mix socialism and capitalism. Uh, democracy and capitalism. Uh, democracy and capitalism. D sorry, democracy and and, and uh, communism. Because <laughs> a, a democracy is where the people have a voice, and communism can only work under a dictator. Uh, one of the something jumped into my mind while you were talking about that group. The difference, I think, is communism works when your group of people dedicates themselves to giving to giving their things, and to sharing their things. Communism doesn't work when it's a system devoted to taking things mm. from people. I love to give. 
and and I think most people do, and that's a broad generalization, but but people like to give. People like to see other people do well. Well, we're coming into the Christmas season where today is Black Friday. The day we're recording this is Black Friday. It is. And yes, you're buying things for yourself, but a lot of it is buying things for other people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that outpouring of material gifts to people in this season is just enormous. Yeah. I think that's where communism and socialism comes together is communism works when it's a group of people dedicated to the giving of their everything for the greater good. Communism doesn't work when there is a small ruling party who's dedicated to the taking of things for the greater good. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's where the defining line is. I think also that in both situations, the greater good needs to apply to what everyone thinks. I take that back. The um, there, there needs to be a shared purpose. We were talking about it being a voluntary thing to do. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a shared vision and goal and purpose to want you to give. Right. To make you want to give. And so, so bringing it back to our family, and and we'll bring it back to Charlotte Mason here in a sec. Um, <laughs> but since we've now spent what twenty minutes talking about socialism and communism, wow! I said how it's kind of uncomfortable the fact that because a commune needs to be a choice, that it's awkward having our children born into it. Well, I think here's the thing: is we're teaching our children to love to give, mm-hmm. and so. Our commune of a family is based on giving. It's not based on taking. It's based on giving. We give to our children. We give them love. We give them affection. We give them education. We give them discipline. There is undivided property enjoyed by all members in common. There we go. With an equality of social condition with diversity of duties. Perfect. Charlotte Mason can say things really well. Right? Maybe we should have just read that from the beginning. Um, a funny thing, I had that highlighted too. So it, so after after I did all of these mental gymnastics to be like, ah, oh, no, communism bad, socialism bad, democracy good. Yeah, okay, it, it makes sense. We we run our family like a commune, okay, because we're teaching our children to love to give. We're teaching our children to be a part of a group. We're teaching them to love to to trust. So we are practically a commune. And if in the future we get the chance to have a an attendant and their belongings that's gathered to our household, they'll be a part of our family too. Yeah. All right. So that's the family as a commune. Any other thoughts there? I think that's it for that part. (laughs) (laughs) So the next is the family must be social. And the first quote I have here is, it by no means follows from this communistic view of the family that the domestic policy should be a policy of isolation. On the contrary, it is not too much to say that a nation is civilized in proportion as it is able to establish close and friendly relations with other nations. It's easy as you look at a commune, as you look at a a standalone group to look inward, to pour inward, mm-hmm. uh, to the exclusion of looking outward, mm-hmm. where where all of your time and energy and attention is, is focused inward. And that is not healthy. And that is not, like she said, it it is barbarous to isolate yourself in that manner, to isolate your family commune in that matter. 
which is a huge warning. It's easy to shut out everything else around you, mm-hmm. to et- shut out everyone around you, and not serve your community. And uh, frankly, that's uh, that's where I've been. I've I've by necessity had to shut out many many things that I would love to do. Yeah. Because I need to focus right now on little children. Mm-hmm. And that is changing because our youngest are now one. They're one, almost one and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's they changing are, rapidly. They're growing beyond that firmly physical need to be with me. Hence, we're recording a podcast. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so looking at that, it's an exhortation to not look inward as well as a warning to make sure you're looking outward. I guess it would be the other way, an exhortation to look outward and a warning not to only look inward. Yeah. And that that flows right into her next point. The family must serve neighbors. A nation is healthy in proportion as it has its own proper outlets, its colonies and dependencies, which it is ever solicitous to include in the national life. So we're healthy only if we have relations with other communes, with other families. And we're not healthy if we are uh, an individualistic society where it's only about our commune. And we see that as you can look through the history of homeschooling in the United States over the last 50 years and point out the flagship cases of why homeschooling is bad, where the family just did crazy weird stuff with their kids and it was really bad and it was abusive and it was horrible and people point to those instances of see homeschooling's terrible people shouldn't do it well those are terrible instances of it because they're not following the guiding principles of what of what a family should be in a nation of what a family should be in a nation the the family should not be isolated and they should have had relation with other families to the point that someone should have seen some of the, the stuff that was going on in those families and gone, hey, this is some weird stuff. Stop it. I drew a little diagram to help me see this in my mind where you have the families interrelating to each other and then skipping on to the next section, each family also serving the public interests of mm-hmm. the nation. So there's the family unit which is in relation with the other family units, which is also coming into, well, they're, they're coming into a joint effort to do these public interests towards the the public welfare. And not only does it say that if they don't do this, then they cease to be a part of the living whole, it becomes positively injurious as decayed tissue in the animal organism. So not only is it not healthy for that little family, it hurts everything. And I think it was talking about also the struggling families at the back, the orphanage, the mission, Mm -hmm. the necessitous of our acquaintance, where those, those that are not as fortunate, those that are not, those that don't have the means, that don't have the support of a family commune, are provided for by the government, by the country, but that country's resources come from the support of each of those family communes. Right. Which is the public interest. 
I feel like I just talked in a big circle there. <laughs> you did, but I think that's okay. Because I think it all it is all a big circle. It goes back to what you're saying about giving. It, it spirals up as opposed to spiraling down. Yeah, so so one thing as you were as you were talking about that, it, it made me see that uh, these these couple of points really flow into one another. You've got the family as a commune, and then after that you've got the family must be social with itself, with its neighbors, and it must serve the nation. And and those those three things really go together. You you can't have any one without the other two. The famous three legged stool. Or uh three a three roped braid, a, a braided rope of three. A three strand cord. There you go. <laughs> That's the one I was looking for. And then it she pulls it even further. And and this is moving into the next section as it regards to other nations. So you have your own little commune, which has to com- uh, communicate and work together and benefit each of the other little communes. In addition to serving the the greater good for the country for the state mm-hmm. and then and in addition to all of those those three things then they also a representation of that country to other countries and as such she has a couple of things that every family should do and that's a learn languages and b mm-hmm. show courtesy abroad one of the things, as we started looking into homeschooling, that we were looking at the... Uh, classical education? Classical education, thank you. And the thing I remember classical education being big on is the foreign languages, namely Latin at first and moving on, I think, to Greek. And and it always it always struck me as strange that you would be learning dead languages. And I understand it, that our, our tongue is derived a lot from Latin and Greek. And when you know Latin, then you can learn the love languages better. And, you know, it it makes sense from a, from a building blocks standpoint. But when put in context of the persons that these children are, it makes sense to, to actually learn to speak languages that you can use to communicate with others now. In the in the context that she's referring to, she she gives a she gives a story of the fair young English woman who's staying with her mom, mother at the German Kurhaus, and they were the only English people there, and they didn't understand the language, and she was just kind of there and ignoring everybody. Well, they had to go to Germany to find people that spoke German. I I don't know the the population breakdown in England. I'm guessing the demographic breakdown in England was such that there were mostly English or British people there. And so they all spoke the same same language. So you had to go somewhere to find someone who spoke a different language. Well, in today's America, you can walk down the street and speak or hear any number of different languages spoken. Not just dialects, not just um, different ways of speaking English, but legitimately different languages. And depending on what city you live in, there are groups of people that are there. When we were in Albuquerque, there was a Korean population. There was a, there was a Mexican population. There were the various Indian tribes that were there. And so there were, there were that many different languages. And if you don't have the ability to communicate with them, then you, you can't. 
This is a an article I found this week, actually. A gentleman named Daniel Everett in the 60s was living in California along the border with Mexico. And Spanish language learning was a requirement in the sixth grade. And he was so excited to start learning Spanish because more than 50% of his school was Mexican-American. And he really wanted to understand them as they went from English, fluent English, to fluent Spanish and back and forth. And he actually got to where his friends asked him if he spoke Spanish at home also. And he didn't. And now I need to pause because my phone is not scrolling. (laughs) Okay, this is an awesome quote. Learning Spanish changed my life. It taught me more about English. It gave me friendships and connections and respect I never could have otherwise received. I have become more convinced than ever that nothing teaches us about the world and how to think more effectively better than learning new languages. Interesting. He goes on to talk about how we could implement this in the United States. And I'm going to link to this article because it's amazing. But talking about the practical benefits, but expanding knowledge and your very intelligence. And so even what she's talking about learning languages so you can talk to other people and and communicate with them and hold brotherly speech with them as the opportunities arise, she was saying this over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's still being said today by different people in different places. But the acknowledgement that learning another language and being able to talk to somebody else shows them respect shows them that you care and it's the duty of higher morality mm-hmm. to aim at universal brotherhood the the quote she has that I, I highlighted here was yes there is a subject or class of subjects which has an imperative moral claim upon us it is the duty of the nation to maintain relations of brotherly kindness with other nations therefore it is the duty of every family as an integral part of the nation to be able to hold brotherly speech with the families of other nations as opportunities arise. So it's the the moral claim to be able to hold, uh, to maintain relations of brotherly kindness. You, you can't have brotherly, you can't have a brotherly relationship if there's a language barrier. Now, you can have brotherly relations if you both speak the same language, but there's a level of respect that goes along with learning someone else's language and then speaking that language to them. Speaking in their heart language. Right. That was that was interesting. I'd never I had never thought of language and learning a foreign language as being a moral thing, a moral choice. It was always just, well, learn to speak Spanish because lots of people speak Spanish in the United States. And so that would be a good thing to do. Yeah, and so it would be a good thing to be able to talk to people. But but no, we have a we have a moral obligation because there is a divine order for the family as regards to other nations. Her suggestion, and and we talked about this earlier, where she doesn't give us very many specific instructions, or as she calls them, crutches. Mm -hmm. Says every family would do well to cultivate two languages besides the mother tongue, even in the nursery. So there we go. <laughs> yep. Well, and and one of the things I've decided in reading the very little bit of her I've read, you know, she talks about here the Germans are better linguists than we. 
all of the philosophers that she mentioned in the preface are all German. And as I was doing a, a quick uh, search on those people, the the concept of the German language being best for philosophizing, and it has the the best terms and flowery descriptions and things. It it makes me want to learn German. Is that still true today? I don't know. I know that that uh, I know that I read on Wikipedia, so grains of salt, grains of sand, take oh. it with a grain of salt, that the German philosophers were very hoity-toity about the fact that no one else can philosophize as well as they can because they speak German. And German is the quintessential language of philosophy. And that if you're going to speak philosophy with a German, you need to do it in German because if they have to translate into any other language, then they're losing, they're losing so much. I don't know if that's still true today. I, I'm curious, after both world wars, how, how that uh, dominance of the German language in the area of philosophy, if that, is, if that still stands? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know either. So let's go ahead and move on then. <laughs> so we must leave further consideration of this great subject and conclude with a striking passage from Mr. Morley's appreciation of Emil. Education slowly came to be thought of in connection with the family. And the improvement of ideas upon education is only one phase of the great general movement towards the restoration of the family. And so as the family improves so the nation will improve and it's it's kind of a, a trickle upward uh, an upward spiral mm -hmm. to where as as we improve on the small very small level and she's talking about the difference between france and england and how the bonds of family are definitely french and definitely english but there are things that they can learn from each other mm-hmm and how the family relations in France are more gracious, more tender, more close, and more inclusive. While at the same time, she comes back and says, says there's little doubt that the family bond is more laxed amongst us than it was two or three generations ago. Perhaps nowhere is family life of more idyllic loveliness than where we see it in its best in English homes. And yet, we might learn something. We are, on the whole, well contented with our English homes. Yet we might learn something from the inclusiveness of the French family, which benefits the children, where they have a wider range for the practice of the thousand sweet attentions and self-restraints, which makes home life lovely. Yeah. Well, and this was this was 100 years ago in England. How much more true today is this? Because nowhere in America is family life more idyllic than really not anywhere in America. The, the averages you have right now are that both parents work. And uh, I was reading in an article the other day that uh, parents on average spend more time with their children than we did 50 years ago. Parents on average work more than they did 50 years ago. And parents on average don't do as much out of the house as they did 50 years ago. So as a family unit, we have ceased doing all of the extracurricular things outside of the family that we used to do. 
which cultivates a uh, very exclusive nature to the family where you have your little family and that's it. And there is no inclusion. You might have a little circle of friends, but that's about it. And you were talking about the, uh, the spiraling up of, of this education and, and the family and the restoration of the family. And I think that's something that is greatly needed in the United States right now, where we need children to grow up in these households where they have they have a wider range for the practice of the thousand sweet attentions and self-restraint, which makes home life lovely. They, they need that at a young age so that when they grow up, their families will have that. And we get a, an exponential effect over the generations. There's, there's seemingly a lot of political unrest in the U.S. at this point. And you can point to whatever factor you want to for, for that to be, whether you fall on this side of the aisle or that or believe strongly in this issue or the other, I think we could all agree that the family is broken by and large in the United States. And I think one of the reasons that there is so much political upheaval and there's political unrest and people are scared and and after every election, half the population is crying because their savior is not elected, be it Hillary or, or, or when uh, Obama was elected or Gosh, even going so back, go, going back as far as uh, George W. That I can remember with each of those three individuals, half the nation kind of went, "Oh no, what are we going to do now? The world has ended. Life is terrible." Part of that, I think, to, is to do with the fact that our family morals have eroded, and the family isn't a unit, and and the family is broken in the United States, and so as we, as a collective of families raise our children right in good families, we restore not only our family, but we restore the families around us. And in generations time, it's, we're not going to see the, the, the fruits of our labor, but our children's children or our children's children's children will see, will see this nation correct itself or nations everywhere will see themselves be corrected because of the family, because the family is restored and from that nucleus, everything else gets fixed almost miraculously. So that was the restoration of the family. Any any last thoughts? One thing that, um, coming back to uh, the divine order for the family as regards other nations, she's talking about the noble dream of fraternity where each individual is attached to a family by ties of love where we're not of blood. And the families are united in a federal bond to form the nations, and the nations are confederate in love and emulous in virtue. And all, nations and their families, playing their several parts as little children about the feet and under the smile of the Almighty Father. And so that is the noble dream of fraternity. And... Mm -hmm. The question comes about what happens when these nations, when these families don't agree, when they have the same goal, say the, you know, the raising up of children, but they have two vastly different and diametrically opposed ways of doing that. Yeah. Which I think is what we see in the United States and why it is so starkly divided. Right. I don't have an answer to this, but what do we do in that instance? What what do we do when when there's so many different 
ways of trying to accomplish the same thing and you can't do everything. I wish I had a good answer. And tagging off of what we just said with the, the talking about the family being the point where we need to make change happen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, it matters infinitely that every family should realize the nature and obligation of the family bond. For as water cannot rise above its source, neither can we live at a higher level than that of the conception we form of our place and use in life. So as we learn more and as we grow in our knowledge of what the family does, so does our capability of doing better in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlotte Mason loves her water analogies. I don't remember if we talked about this earlier. And We're if we at did, four. We can cut this out. Is this four? I have three written. Yeah, you had three written, written last time. I must have missed one somewhere. Uh, the letting out of waters of the parental enthusiasm on page three. That's the one you missed. I have that as number two. And then as the waters answer the drawing of the moon uh, on the same okay. page. Yeah, I missed that one. <clears throat> yeah, so we're on number four, where the uh, the waters rise, and you can only you can only go so high as the the top, and to go higher you have to raise the top. We'll see how much more water she does. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. How how many how often she brings up water in the future? Maybe I should change the uh, some of our pictures to water instead of books. Uh, you know, if it's a theme that continues, it might not be a bad idea. Like that could be that could be a fun little insider trick. Make it the episode header or the art for each episode <laughs> or some of them. Go go find a picture of our kids playing in water somewhere. Oh, the Put theme for on. the theme for chapter one is water. <laughs> <laughs> theme for chapter two is water. Something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we haven't gotten to chapter two. That's true. We haven't. I think that's it. Next time we'll come back with uh, chapter two. And we'll have some some fun discussion in chapter two, where we talk about parents as rulers. That'll be a blast. <laughs> and this was chapter one, The Family. Ta-ta for now.